hey everyone, welcome to episode 114 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's guest is California-based landscape photographer David Hunter. Davis joined us again on the podcast to talk all about his experience as a photographer on an artist-in-residency program at Craters of the Moon National Monument and Preserve in Idaho. David and I had a great time discussing a variety of topics, including the intensity of an artist-in-residency program, the history of Craters of the Moon and what it's like to photograph there, how the park system engages with visitors and locals through the artist-in-residency program, and his experience speaking with visitors as the artist-in-residence. This week over on Patreon for our bonus episode, David and I discuss and dissect some of his favorite images from his time as the artist-in-residence at Craters of the Moon. He took some really fantastic shots, and they were really fun to check out. All right, let's get to the show. David Hunter, man, it's awesome to have you back on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for for what you got going on right now. You're actually just wrapping up a resident uh, artist in residency program at uh, Craters of the Moon. Is that right? That is correct. Um, I came uh, last Monday, the tenth, uh, and I'm going to be here through Friday, the twentieth. Um, Awesome. What's it been like so far? Um, it's been, it's been really awesome, actually. Um, this is my second residency, um, that I've had in two years for a national, um, technically it's part of the national park system, but it's craters of the moon is a national monument. Um, but it's all administered by the national park service. And, um, I was selected for this residency two years ago. Um, I guess there was about 63 applicants and I came in second. And so they emailed me and they said um, they had picked some kind of sound artist for last summer as the first, the first person. Sound, um, a sound artist? Yeah. So somebody who produces um, sound, um, different sound files. So as an artist, so. Interesting. Uh, but what they told me, the uh, head of interpretation is like, look, We've been running this program for 10 years and we've never had a photographer. Wow. And it's like, we, re- we really liked your stuff, but instead of, you know, reapplying the following year, why don't, would you be willing to just take it for the following summer? I was like, sure. <laughs> why not? You know, I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's how it happened. So what's the, uh, what's kind of the main reason that the park service offers uh, the artist in residency program? Cause it's, Seems like it's not quite for everyone, but it seems like an amazing opportunity if you can if you can do it. Right, you know, it's been, it's actually got a long history. Mm. Um, I think dating back. I mean, I have to check my facts here, but I think it's probably dating back up up into the thirties, nineteen thirties, because um, I know that you know artists were a big part of of um, promoting um, conservation and Yosemite. I think some of the first images and paintings that came out of Yosemite, people didn't believe that that's what it looked like. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, they just thought it was, you know, artistic flourish or something. And, right. and they're like, no, this is actually what it looks like. They and, thought it was just a bunch of uh, like an Albert Bierstadt painting. Right. And um, and I know that some of that was covered in that documentary that Ken Burns did on the park system. Mm, OK. Um, but I know that it's just it's just had a long established role. And I don't know how many parks do it, but there are there are several that have programs and each park administers it differently. Um, like where I'm at right now, Cares of the Moon, I'm the only artist for the summer. But um, last summer, I was at um, Bighorn Canyon National Recreation Area in Wyoming, and they run um, they run an artist every every two weeks for f for five terms. So oh, wow. they pick five artists. So it just depends on what the park wants to do. Um, and it's all so, run through the national park system. Yeah, uh, although I've seen a few. Um, run through the BLM okay. and also through the Forest Service. So, um, but it's most widely known through the National Park System. Okay, cool. So, and you know, it did. You know, again, every park does it differently. Um, I just applied for Denali. National oh, really? Park. <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, it would be, but here's the funny part. So, Denali has such. Uh, you know, it's so well known. Right. And it's so popular. So they open their application process June 1st for the following summer. <laughs> and they close it off, I think, at the end of September. And they only they cap it at the first 250 applications. Oh, wow. And then they they take until you find out in December if you're going the following summer. Um, and they choose about five artists. And so. so you've done a couple of them. So it sounds like they're all a little bit different in terms of uh, what they're looking for, the selection criteria. Do you have right. a sense of kind of what they're looking for and how they, how someone can get chosen out of a large pool of people? Um, I tend to do um, like, I, you have to really do your research because um, I look closely at the park and what, what it, um, First of all, in their application progress they, or process, they'll usually state exactly. Like Bighorn Canyon was so laid back, they're just like, just send us your website and a resume. <laughs> and I was like, are you sure? And they're like, well, we've asked for that other stuff before, but you know, the people selecting don't tend to read it. So <laughs> we'll just go by this. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, but for this park and Denali, and then I know, um, Mesa Verde, Mesa Verde especially, I haven't gotten into that one, but they have they have like themes and you have to pick one of six themes that you're going to apply to. Wow. And, and you know, kind of gear your your um, application towards that theme of and how could you fit it? Um, when I applied for Denali, they asked, they they said in, in the application, first of all, theirs is all strictly online. It's actually through a call for entry system. So they've streamlined it that way. Um, and you have to, all parks usually require some kind of public program at least once during your residency. Um, so they want to know what your public program is going to be about and how you're going to interact with the public. Mm -hmm. um, and then Denali also asked how you're going to do outreach once you're back home after your experience. Mm -hmm. 
So I had to do a, a write-up of a page of like how I would integrate my um, experience if I was lucky enough to get it of a residency up there, you know, back at home. And I talked about how being a teacher, I could integrate, you know, my residency experience into my classroom and, mm. you know, do a study unit kind of thing with my mm -hmm. kids. So, um, and I think I'm actually going to do that with even this experience at Craters in the Moon, because um, there's there's several things, kind of like junior rangery type things that I could do with the kids. I think that would be fun with them and learning about the um, volcanoes and things like that. So, yeah. And so, Craters of the Moon is in Idaho, and you live in California. Is that right? Yeah, I live in central the Central Valley of California. Okay. Uh huh. So, like, what are some of the benefits that you've been able to um, reap in a res artist in residency program? I, th I think the biggest benefit is I think it goes both ways. Like I like to, I mean, by having the residency, I get known a little bit more. I get my images out. Um, but I, I see it as a, as a two-way uh, collaboration and I don't think all artists do it this way, but this is the way I view it. So I have a I have a different I say I have a different skill set because I started out in photojournalism, and then I've mm -hmm. done different variations of photography. So when I come to the park, I say, "Hey, is there anything that you really need photography-wise?" Mm -hmm. And so they'll say, oh, yeah, we really need pictures of our inter interpretation program over at this location. Or currently at Crares the Moon, they're working on a special project, and they wanted some photos of that because I guess a congressional delegation is coming in August. <laughs> and so they want to they highlight what they've been doing uh -huh. um, through that. And so I was like, sure. So, you know, I make sure I get those for them. And that's one of my goals. And then, of course, my second goal is just to push myself as an artist. And it's like, what can I do creatively? How can I kind of push my my comfort zone of art, you know, being artistic and seeing things? So I've had a big, big focus, especially in this residency, of, of looking more for intimate landscapes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and And so that's what I'm doing on you know, on my side. And then for the park, I'm trying to get images that they, that I know that they could use to help promote themselves. And there, there may not be, so I'm actually doing two tiers of images. I'm doing the high art side for myself and, and it could even be more abstract stuff. Sure. Um, and, and the park may or may not use that because it's, you know, abstract, but I'm also making sure to get the general photos that I know that, you know, they could use in their flyers or program presentations or things like that, that represent different parts of the park. So, so in the, when you sign up to be an artist in residence, like I'm assuming that their expectation on their end is that they'd be able to use any of your images uh, to promote that particular area. Actually, that's not the case. Interesting. So the, the expectation is, that you usually donate one piece of art huh. when you're done. And so, like the digital file counts or do they want an actual physical piece? So in the past, it's been a physical piece. It, it turns out that Craters of the Moon still wants that physical piece. 
So I'm willing to do that. But when I was in Bighorn, um, they were willing to take a, a, you know, a physical piece. But I said, well, how would you, would you also like a CD of, you know, my top images for you to use? And they're like, yeah, we'd rather have the CD. So (laughs) I know, I I know that Denali um, has now turned it to um, digital as well, just because I think they're running out of space. You know, because the bigger programs mm. have been doing this for a long time and they just don't have the space to exhibit all the pieces they get, even if it's once a year. I see. Kind of thing. And do they um, do they sell like posters of residents' photographs or art in their no, like no. like gift shop or no? No, but what they do, um, this was kinda cool. So um Bighorn Canyon from last summer actually contacted me, I'd say about two months ago. And I have one particular image that they really loved. And I happened to take it the very first night I was there. And I was looking um, kind of up the canyon and it was overcast with clouds, but there was a thin strip of like glow in the distance of of, um, sunlight. And I took this shot straight down the canyon, looking at that glow with the clouds above and they loved it. And so they're like, would you allow us to turn this into a sticker that we can sell in the gift shop? <laughs> You're like, sure. I was like, sure. So I had to sign, you know, you know, three or four papers um, because, you know, government always has paperwork <laughs> um, basically right. releasing and you're the not, uh, specific purpose. Yeah. And you're not, um, you're not able, you don't get like financial, you're not like a financial stakeholder in that transaction. No, no, because I keep copyright to everything. So, but I, what I did is I allowed them limited use of that photo for the sticker. Type I of see. Thing. So, and, and even then, when I donate my pictures, sorry to interrupt, I was going to say, when I donate the pictures for them to use, it's like, I know that I have the copyright, but I, I am willing to give that to them because I want them to be able to, use them to promote their stuff. So Sure. And then in terms of logistics, like as an artist in residence, do you, do they provide lodging? Do they provide food? Do they like, what do, what do you, like how much are you responsible for and how much are they responsible for? Right. So most parks will provide the lodging. Now the, the quality of the lodging is as varied as the, um, <laughs> as the application process. So, (laughs) (laughs) and it it just depends. Um, So right now um, at Curves of the Moon, I am in park housing and there's actually interesting background to that, which we can go to in a few minutes, but I'm in uh, basically like an apartment type situation where it's um, like a living room, a kitchen, and then there's three rooms in a house type situation. And I'm in one of the rooms that has a bunk bed. Um, nice. And then I have another guy that's rooming with me that's in a separate room. And he's actually a seasonal. I mean, all the housing is for the seasonals. So he's here for six months. And his job is actually media specialist. He was brought in to help um, develop um, Instagram, Facebook, and push out more media stuff for the park. Hmm. Um, and he's actually doing, he's got three parks in Idaho that he's working for, but he's based out of here. Right. Um, uh, when I was in Bighorn Canyon, 
they had a house for the artists and residents that was actually on top of a historic home. So it was the upstairs. Um, and I think three or four years ago, it burned down. And nobody was there, fortunately, during the winter. But they lost their housing. And so when I, I went, most of their residents are usually older and retired. So they bring in their travel trailers or things like that, and they just provide them a spot in the campground. But I didn't have that. So they let me have a room in what was their boat check station. Um, and so it was just <laughs> this little, little house where they would check boats for, um, you know, mussels and, and different things for, you know, for the water access. Um, but at night I was totally alone and it was a nice room. The, the problem was that the um, station itself and the water supply was contaminated by sulfur. Oh no. Um, so you couldn't shower and you couldn't use any of the water for cooking. Um, and they had a small kitchen, so they had bottled water, and I would use that. But even just washing the dishes once I was done, right? It just was kind of slimy. Uh. Um, so, um, so I wound up showering uh, every few days at actually one of the rangers' houses. He was the seasonal as well that I got to be friends with, <laughs> and he was in town. So, um, and then. You're providing all of your own food, and I'm guessing also your all your own transportation. Yes, all my own food transportation. Now I know um, uh, technically I'm a volunteer in the park. Okay. And when I've when I've been at other parks to do photography projects, not artists and residencies, but just projects, and I've had that status, like I've been able to drive park vehicles or things like that, but that hasn't been offered to me here. Um, but if I needed something, I'm sure they would find a way to get me somewhere, or something like that. So right. they're they're pretty they're pretty accommodating cool. um, as far as you know what I you know what I need. Um, this park was actually the first one where they gave me um, a hat with the NPS logo, and then I have some volunteer shirts that I put on when I do my public programs. Awesome. So what's the, uh, like, what can you expect as an artist in terms of like the transition from maybe, maybe someone has a day job or I know you're a teacher, so you probably went from, uh, from teaching to, to doing this program. Like what's the intensity like? Um, you know, it, it actually turns out to be rather intense. Um, and the funny thing about that is, so my photography, um, I'm sure, and I'm sure you know you've experienced this because you have a day job as well. It, it goes in spurts. Yes. So I've got periods where I, I'm out photographing a lot, and and then other periods where I get dry spells because just the demands of work and family are just too much and doesn't allow me to go out and photograph. Or if um, you have a and, podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, and I don't have a podcast, but. Um, I do have uh, this year I had 18 five-year-olds that I was teaching in a grade level for the first time. Um, yeah. I teach trans transitional kindergarten. And so just the first two, say two and a half months, I, I just had no time for photography because I was still trying to figure out what I was doing Right. Um, for teaching. And, and it was a lot of prep and organization and, you know, you get home and then today you're just wiped. Yeah, yeah I'm not going to take pictures today. <laughs> right. So, or just, 
you know, just editing or things like that, you know? Right. Um, so I, I ended teaching on June, uh, I want to say 7th. Um, my kids and I got in the car and left on June 8th. Uh, we stayed overnight in Carson City, Nevada, because that's where I grew up. Um, so I visited with my mom there um, with the kids. And then we drove on from Carson City to Elko, Nevada, which is where my aunt and uncle live. And um, I dropped my kids off um, and they get to spend two weeks with my aunt and uncle, which I'm very happy about because that's actually how I used to spend my summers. Yeah. Is up in Elko. And so you take two kids from Fresno, California, you know, very urban situation and put them in rural Nevada and they get to ride horses and a four wheeler and uh, just run around and it's, you know, a whole new experience for them. So they, they're enjoying themselves. That's awesome. Um, and so then I drove from there up to the park and I encountered this last year in Bighorn Canyon too. So it's been kind of, I shouldn't be totally surprised, but it's this switching of gears where you're in your work mode and then you come to the park for your residency and it's like you're starting the first day on the job again. But this time the job is photography and you're expected to go out every day and just make art. And that's the best job ever. It sounds really easy, but you know, during the, during the year, you know, if I get a chance to do that, I just, you know, I go out on a Saturday or, you know, like you've done, you've gone out to climb a mountain and you're gone for the weekend. Right. Um, right. And so it's this limited time. I've now got a two week period of just where I'm, my only job is to go out and make photos every day with a couple public programs interspersed in that. And it's like, wow. Right. And I'm <laughs> right? sure, I'm sure that uh, listeners who also have full-time jobs are, like thinking to themselves, oh my God, that sounds amazing. And then other everyone else who doesn't have full-time jobs and does photography full-time are probably like, yeah, that doesn't sound that great. <laughs> right. And, and it's not like I have pressure from the park to produce because as an artist, they don't, you know, they're not saying you, you, you must come up with something, but I mean, I have my own pressure on myself. It's like, I got to show that they made a good choice. Right. Right that they chose wisely. So the first three days I was here, in fact, uh, I'll tell you this. So I arrived at, I think, 9 a.m. on Monday, the 10th. And by one o'clock that afternoon, I was already out in the field with a survey crew documenting them doing um, termite surveys. Uh, (laughs) And then two hours after that, I was out, um, in the monument, photographing um, old volcanoes and things like that. So I, I mean, I literally jumped right in. I, I didn't have much time to even unpack. I think I did that the next day, <laughs> um, right? Where I set up my room, um, and then on that Wednesday, so that would have been the twelfth. Um, I got to talk. I immediately got to know a few people, and that was really nice. Um, as far as the within the housing and some of the interp staff. So one of the people I got to know, her name is Molly and she's an astro ranger. So her job is to talk about the night sky and things like that, interpret for the park on that. So That'd be awesome. um, we got up at three in the morning 
on Wednesday morning and went out to the lava fields to try and capture the Milky Way. And I had this kind of pre-visualized thing of where I would photograph the ranger with the, you know, the Milky Way and the lava fields. And as soon as we got out there, I timed it, you know, planned it all in um, Photographer's Ephemeris. And then I realized that um, as we got there, that twilight just happens a lot faster here. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know if it's our latitude or what's going on, but the Milky Way was because we had this window between the full moon setting or almost full moon and um, twilight. And I thought we had the perfect window, but it turns out twilight just happened faster. Oh, so yeah. I've, I've seen I that wound, happen. Yeah. So I wound up just photographing um, her in her ranger outfit uh, out on the lava fields and just kind of looking at, you know, the sky in general. And then we did a few other poses and um, just for fun. But so you, you put all that together to get back to your question of like, you know, early mornings and just the intensity. And it's like I'm putting out all this creative energy. And after a few days, I'm just tired. Right. Right. And I actually put some um, movies on like a jump drive that I was going to watch in my downtime. But it's like I haven't even had time to watch one yet because I'm when I'm not photographing, I'm I'm eating or I'm <laughs> sleeping. Right. <laughs> and, and and it's kind of this cycle of like, oh, this is so energizing. And then it goes to crash and then it's so energizing and then it goes to crash. Right. <laughs> um, um, and usually the crash is in the middle of the day for four or five hours because I've been up early. Um, yesterday morning, I uh, got up at, um, well, I got up at three, but I left the car at 3.30 in the morning and hiked three and a half miles to a crater that's out in the wilderness area um, that I'd seen on the Google Earth. And I'd done a bunch of planning before I came came to Idaho, you know, pinpointing different places I wanted to try and check out. Yeah. And I got there at 5 a.m., so, you know, hour and a half of hiking in the dark. Unfortunately, the trail was pretty straight and narrow, <laughs> so it was easy to follow. Yeah. And I had a little bit of moonlight to help me out. But um, I got there, and it, I was just blown away because the, the Google Earth did not do it justice. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, two or – about two and a half sides of the crater are like thousand foot drops from the edge. Mm, mm -hmm. um, and then you kind of, I circumnavigated and, and did it some big panos, but you know, I got back at, I think 10, um, 10 that morning and I'd already done 11 and a half miles before 10 o'clock in the morning. That's amazing. <laughs> so, and then I think it was like 22,000 steps and 29 floors, according to my, tracking out so that's awesome it's like so, so then there's some recovery time right and then in the evening i'm i'm able to go out again so so it sounds like it's and i'm not putting it down at all because i wouldn't trade it for the world because i still you know enjoy the time but there is a cycle of the up and down of yeah like you're putting out so much energy and focusing on what you're doing and then and then just the physical effort and the creative effort you're putting out kind of drains you and you have to recharge and then yeah. start again. So, so, so speaking, speaking about your experience of, of hitting, hitting that crater with a thousand foot drop on either side and yeah. the Google earth didn't do it justice kind of a thing. When you approach a scene like that, 
how do you approach it? Because in my experience, uh, it's it's like two, it's like one part panic and one part inspiration, and it's and it's and it's wonderful and it's amazing. But I'm wondering what your approach is because mine is chaos. <laughs> right. Well, when I first arrived there, um, and, and this is kind of funny. So I've been using Instagram for a long time, but I've never done a story. <laughs> Instagram <laughs> okay, yeah, story. sure. And so my whole thought was like, oh, I'm going to record this whole experience to do a story. And so I, I pre-recorded myself in the car and then hiking <laughs> and getting to the crater and then shooting and doing all that stuff. And I tried to load it yesterday and it loaded it out of sequence. <laughs> and so it just looked funky. <laughs> and so, and in fact, I had to ask one of the um, 22 year old inter people on how to actually work the Instagram stories because I'd never done it before. <laughs> um, I was a little embarrassed. But, it's not intuitive. Um, don't, don't be too hard on yourself. Right. So I actually have to reload that so it looks better so people can see. Um, but when I first got to the edge of the crater, I was like, like I said, my, my jaw just dropped because first of all, I didn't realize how deep it was. Um, and I was up on the edge and I just hiked, actually, I just bushwhacked through a bunch of sagebrush because the main trail does go by it, but there's no trail to the actual crater. Uh. Um, and the, the, it's their part of their wilderness area in the park. But, and they want you, they encourage camping out there, but they don't make it easy as, you know, cutting a trail. Sure. <laughs> Excuse me. Cutting a trail straight to it. So um, so I'm up on the rim, and the very first thing I see is kind of this rock outcropping. And immediately in my head it pops up. It's like, oh, that would be cool because it was facing the, um, the um, twilight um, light coming up. Oh, sure. And I was like, you know, immediately in my head, I get all these Instagram shots in my head that I've seen of people standing silhouetted, <laughs> right? And I was like, oh, that'd be cool. So I start to get ready and do a couple test shots. And the dynamic range between that and the dark side of the crater is just way too big. I was like, oh, skip that. <laughs> um, <laughs> cancel that. So what are you, what are you um, shooting with? I have a Nikon D810. Okay. Um, it's capable. And then I also, yeah, it is capable. I just, I guess at five in the morning, I wasn't quite tuned in enough to figure it out. <laughs> um, and I also have a, a Nikon D5600 that's actually uh, infrared converted. Oh, wow. Okay. So it only, only sees an infrared. So I shot, I usually shoot with that during the day. Um, but so going back to your question of the like, you know, planning. So then so then I'm thinking, OK, um, this thing is huge. This crater is huge. What I need to do is a pano. And to that date. So I'd been there five days. That was my sixth day there. And I had not done any panos in the, in the park yet. So it's like, OK, well, this is time to whip out my pano skill. Right. Um, so I circumnavigated kind of around the crater to a lower spot and determined that was a good spot because of where, and I'd, I'd kind of seen this on the Photographer's Ephemeris, like I knew which way the sun would be coming up and which side of the crater would be lighting up. Mm -hmm. So I just, I basically put that right in front of me and then it was just finding the, 
you know, the fine detail of like, where exactly do I stand to get this best? Right. Um, and then I, you know, I shot that as the sun started to come up. Um, and there was still one little area that was kind of shadowed because of the high walls, but you know, the dynamic range will be covered with the camera. So, so it um, sounds like I'm you really, sounds like you kind of went through a similar process of inspiration, panic, and then settling down to find something reasonable. <laughs> right, right, and and also, you know, that's the other thing is like um, I'm trying not to. I I know you've talked about this on the podcast before because um, I've heard you many times. In fact, I will tell you, you kept me company all the way to the crater. Oh, cool. Um, <laughs> I was listening to your latest interview. Um, it was with um, the photographer out oh, of with um, Justin. Yes, out of Reno area, yeah. um, which fascinated me because that's the area I kind of grew up in. So yeah, um, I was listening to that. So I listened to that whole interview all the way to the crater, um, which helped. I think helped me just keep moving too, um, but. You know, I, 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 I'm attentive to, um, I know people go back and forth. Like some people say, it's like, if I'm going to an area, I don't look at Instagram. I don't look at Google. I don't want to see anything that people have taken before. Or you do the uh, complete my, opposite. Like I want to see everything that's ever been shot in that area so right. that I know what's not to miss. <laughs> right. Well, to me, it just informs me because I want to know what's been done before just as far as angles and opportunities. Right. Because I, I already know that my own art process is going to be different than the photographer before me. Sure. Um, I was really fortunate in high school to have a photography teacher who, who, who basically told me, it's like, if you like something, try and copy it. Because in the process of copying it, you're going to create something that's your own. And I'm not, I mean, I don't go out and try and copy other people's images, but just that thought of like, I, I've seen something and now I'm going to go out and try and make a piece of art f inspired by that, you know, and try and do, and then put my spin on it. So, right. and I hadn't seen any shots of Echo Crater from Sunrise, but there had been shots of it. So, um, and it's, you know, it's not easy to get to as far as just, you know, putting in the time commitment to hike out, you know, four, three and a half miles and, you know, be prepared because there's no water out there at all. Mm -hmm. um, that's the one thing about this park that's interesting is that um, there's no streams, there's no rivers, anything. This is a high desert type area, sagebrush everywhere. Yeah. Um, so um, fortunately we're still in the eighties. And so it's, you know, comfortable back home. I think there are over a hundred every day. Um, but it, you know, late July, they can get up into the hundreds here. Well, and, maybe, um, maybe, maybe this is a good time for you to talk a little bit about craters of the moon and the history of that park and kind of what it's about, because I think it's kind of one of those national monuments that flies under the radar and that people don't know a whole lot about. And, and I would love right. to hear, hear about kind of, what that place is about. I've never been there myself personally and, and seeing some of the photos you po posted on 
Facebook and Instagram, uh, it's it looks like a really fascinating place that's kind of kind of untouched by a lot of artists. So what what tell us tell us what it's about. Sure. Um, so it is, it's very fascinating. So the park, the, or I'm sorry, I keep using the term park and, and the park staff uses the word park, but it's not a national park. It's actually a national monument and preserve. It started out as a monument. It was designated in 1924 by Calvin Coolidge. Um, and at that time, I think it only included roughly like a five mile area radius from the main road, um, kind of the best features. Um, and then what was interesting that is in 2000, um, Bill Clinton designated the preserve part, but at the time there had been a lot of land use because if you look, if you look at the, the monument on a map, what you see is um, it's, it's all volcanic, but, they, and they have lots of volcano type hills and things like that, but it's not the big volcanoes we think of like from Hawaii. These, this, what happened was there's something called the, the Great Rift, and it was basically a split in the earth, and the, the lava just kind of bubbled up. So, and it went over the Snake River Plain. And if I've got my geology right, the, the same. Uh, thermal geothermal activity that's happening now under Yellowstone used to be under this monument, you know, mm. 2000 years ago. Mm. And because of the plate tectonics, it's just now migrated under Yellowstone. Um, so all this lava kind of bubbled up and then it kind of split out in fingers in different areas. And because it was finger shaped, it created certain areas within the monument that were actually still, you know, just basically land. And the lava kind of isolate them and made these kind of land islands. Hmm. Well, the locals, being Idaho, were grazing cattle and doing hunting, like pheasant and um, sage grouse, things like that, on, on the land portions that were not the lava, because nothing really lives on the lava um, except there's some chipmunks and uh, pika, or I guess pika. Um, <laughs> that's really the only mammals. But um, like, I have not worried about rattlesnakes at all because there's just no way they can survive <laughs> on the lava part. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, but you've got these isolated islands. So when Clinton, when Clinton designated it as the preserve, he included all the lava flows, but that kind of isolated the, the land islands in the middle. And the locals were like, you know, we don't mind it being preserved, but we still want access to our hunting grounds. Right. And so what they wound up doing is the National Park Service does the monument and the preserve. And then they created a separate BLM or Bureau of Land Management or preserve that only um, captures the, the land islands. Okay. So, when you look, um, I don't know if you've got a map in front of you, um, but when you look at it, it's really fascinating because there's there's there could be land islands that are like, you know, 20 feet, you know, with lava all around it, and that portion is managed by the BLM. But you've got bigger areas that are, you know, 
you know, a couple hundred acres that are also, in, you know, um, surrounded by lava and that's also managed by the BLM. So that's the one thing that's holding back. So to jump back real quick, you've got a national monument, a national preserve, and then you've got the BLM monument and all three units are encompassed in one in this, in this monument. Yeah. If you look at it um, on a satellite in Google maps or Google earth, you can definitely see all these little like patches of like round circles of islands uh, all over the right. place. It's very interesting. Yeah. And if they're not black, if they're lighter in color, that's that's the just regular land that got surrounded by lava. Basically, what turns out to be is a, like a little hill. Um, and you can see them from different viewpoints in the park. They're called kapukas. Huh. Um, and they just wind up being like just you know, this little area. Um, and so I would say that's actually what's keeping this place from becoming a national park is because right now there's this delicate balance and it was, the balance was reached by the locals and the government saying, look, we want our, we want our land preserved, but we also want access. So right now they have the perfect balance between access and protection. But if, it becomes a national uh, forever to become a national park. What would happen was all those land islands would right. go away. Um, and it would, that would all be encompassed in the national park and there would no longer be hunting allowed or the grazing right. in those areas. I feel like um, I've, I feel like land management in the United States is a very challenging balance because I don't know if you've, you've been keeping up with the, uh, the BLM's decision to open up, all that land in Utah near uh, uh, Factory Butte uh, to OHV use, but it's right. Yeah, it's right. And, and like, and like, actually. I'm a big proponent actually of. Uh, I want everyone who enjoys the land to be able to access it for what they want to access it for. But I think it makes right. a lot of sense to kind of divvy it up to different uses so that different uses aren't disturbing other uses. Um, for example, like nature photographers and wilderness advocates, you know, we're, we're not going to have the same type of impact as say hunters and, and land, uh, uh, land, uh, livestock grazing and OHVs. Um, it doesn't make sense for there to be a ton of overlap between those, those, those land use types, uh, so right. I just wish that the BLM was a little bit more thoughtful in terms of carving up um, the landscapes. So that it, yeah, so that it was, you know, like, oh, this area makes the most sense for this type of user. Um, this area makes the most sense for right. this type of user. I feel like maybe that's the best way to think about it. Although if you do that, then obviously you're going to limit in, you're going to limit access to different areas to different uses, but I think that's a good thing. I don't know. I'm not a land manager, but right. it sounds like they're kind of thinking about that up there in Idaho. Right. Well, and I, I mean, it seems like they just, they were able to strike a good balance because if the government were just to come in and say, no, this is national park and we're just doing this, there would be a huge rebellion oh, for from sure. the locals because it's like, it's a government land grab in, in the locals view. Right. Like, Right now, they feel like this is what works. And and interestingly, everyone I've talked to about this issue here have all said that 
um, it would actually not be healthy for the monument either because it would triple the um, oh they get so much so many more visitors right just by changing the title yeah like because I have a friend that works in Pinnacles National Park and for many years that was a national monument and then it got converted and so I asked him I was like well what's the difference and he's like he's like we're not managing it any differently than we were before it's just a change in title but that you know, suddenly it's so much more prestigious when you hit national park status that everybody wants to come. Um, so right now it seems like, you know, in this part or monument, they've, they've reached a good balance mm -hmm. and it's working out. Um, and, and actually, I want to talk to that real quick. Um, so going back to the history a little bit. So when this park was... Um, Des or I'm sorry, when this monument was designated, um, there was a boom in national parks and it was in the 30s. Mm. Um, and at the time, people were recreating and they wanted to you know, make more places for people to visit. So it was established under that context. Then the, mm. the World War came along uh, um, and you know, resources were scarce. So well, park visitation was way down, you know, things were diverted other places. Um, and after the war was over, you know, you've got a whole generation of people, the baby boomers are, you know, um, you know, having kids and they wanted to suddenly start recreating again. <laughs> and right. so the park service actually got a huge influx of money and it was called Mission 66. And it started in the 50s, and the goal was to have everything completed by 1966. And so many parks got um, – there's books out there on this called Mission 66, if anyone's interested. But um, so many parks got lots of funding, and they built brand-new visitor centers and, um, you know, employee housing. And so everything in this park – um, the visitor center and the employee housing was all built in the fifties. Um, and from the outside, it actually still looks like it's the fifties, <laughs> the design elements and all that. I mean, it's obviously been modernized in different ways. Um, it was kind of funny when I first got here, I had to sign, uh, um, several waivers, um, acknowledging that I was aware of the lead paint that was probably 50 coats under <laughs> the paint right. that was currently there and to not be chewing on the walls. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So they're basically just covering themselves. But um, interesting enough, there's, there's two buildings in this park that were from the original 1930s construction. And one is a bathroom in the campground. It's a it's like a log cabin style. And the other is a maintenance building that's kind of in their boneyard where they store stuff. Mm. Um, and so they're still standing. But all the other buildings in the park have, were built back in the six or 50s and then completed by 1966. Yeah. Um, so that's crazy. And yeah. Now, I will tell you something interesting. Um so the park is currently working on a project, and I think it's a great example of how when you've got a remote park like this, so I keep saying park, but when you've got a remote monument like this, 
it's kind of isolated. So the nearest town is named Arco. Um, and it's most famous for, believe it or not, for um, being powered for an hour by nuclear power. <laughs> so <laughs> there is a the Idaho National Laboratory, which used to be, um, well, still is government run, but it's now called the Idaho National Laboratory. Mm -hmm. So it's a nuclear research facility, and that's where they came up with some of the first nuclear reactors. Right. Um and it actually is the only place that um, is still on record of having the first fatalities for a nuclear accident when one of the reactors they're working on um, overheated and three guys were killed. I think it was back in the 50s. Um, um, but they, they developed nuclear, um, basically nuclear engines, and they built them for submarines right and so in town there is the sail or the you know the top portion of a submarine in the center of town um that is from the first submarine that this that this area provided um power for and it actually mapped the whole arctic using nuclear power yeah i see on the map there's um, a town between arco and idaho falls called atomic city yes which is hilarious. Actually, a friend of mine uh, that I went to high school with went to, uh, he has his master's degree in engineering, mechanical engineering. Or, and he went, he actually has a job at Bechtel Bettis in Idaho Falls. And basically, they manage all of the nuclear waste for the Navy. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's a Navy research facility. It's like, what is a Navy research facility doing in, in Idaho. Idaho. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, it's all about nuclear. Right. Um, so yeah, they've got that sale in town. And the, the funny side story to that is that apparently when that that um, submarine was made, it's it happened to be that its boat number was 666. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's called, nice. it's called the devil boat, but it's been controversial in town for many years because it's a very conservative um, town yes it is and, <laughs> and they don't want the 666 you know promenaded <laughs> and apparently it's been graffitied over multiple times and it's been fixed because apparently the town still has to issue a report to the navy they've leased they've leased the top of this sub for a hundred years at one dollar and they have to send in an annual report on how 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 it's functioning, even though it's not functioning, right? It's just sitting in a park. <laughs> so that sounds um, like government waste at yes. its finest. All right. So going back to the project in the park, so it's very remote. And so I, I had to sit down with the superintendent the other day, just chatting. And he asked me to take some photos of a project they're working on. And basically what they're doing is they're rebuilding one of their trails. So back in the fifties, when the park got all that influx of money to build the new buildings, they actually put in the roads and they put in the trails. And at the time, the thinking was like, well, we just need to put trails to these popular features, but we're crossing lava fields. So how do we do this? So basically, they just took asphalt and laid it over the top of the lava. And so the trail goes up and down and winds. And, you know, you're, you're kind of impacting the landscape because you've got this asphalt trail that leads to the different features. And a lot of those are still present in the park. But over the years, and they get a lot of snow here too, 
which I'm sure contributes to the breakdown, but the edges of that asphalt begins breaking off, um, sort of like calving of a glacier. And, you know, you have to fix it and it looks bad and just causes problems. So they've got a new trail that they're building and they put it out to bid. And when they put it out to bid for contracting, the bid came back at three to four million dollars, which is a lot of money for for a two and a half mile trail. Um, and what they're doing is they're trying to make it handicap accessible. Um, and all the trails are are basically handicap accessible, but you know it's they don't uh, they don't comply with that whole degree um, angle part because because they followed the uh, lava path. So you know there's dips and rises and you know it can be hard to push a wheelchair. So they wanted a more level surface for a trail to you know see these features. So they did some rethinking, and what they came up with is that Congress issued the park a special status, and they now keep 100% of their entrance fees. So nothing goes to the federal government for that. And then they also got special hiring status because they're a remote park. So what they did is they're hiring a bunch of local kids, you know, high school and just graduated kids, they train them how to weld, and now there's a crew of 10 kids that are building a trail that are basically, they're welding it into place, and it's all ADDA compliant. It's all one level ramp, and then once the superstructure is built with the welding, they put um, plywood boards across the top and then put the asphalt on top of that. Hmm. Um, and they're paying these kids $15 an hour and, and they've given them job skills, right? With the welding. And when I was out there, there was four different girls welding on this trail. Huh. And, you know, I have no pretexts of, you know, who should be welding and who should not. I've just never seen that before. Um, <laughs> all right. I mean, and, there's a and it's all local. Yeah. There's local a kid. That's cool. There's a huge shortage of uh, kind of some of those like vocational tech jobs in this country. Um, right. So that's cool to hear. Yeah. I mean, my own school district is, has started a vocational school just to help teach some of these skills because there's you know truck mechanics needed and truck drivers and things like that, that they're just trying to teach that you don't get normally. Yeah. I mean, honestly, um, you can not to digress, but you can make more money doing a lot of the vocational tech type jobs, and you can with a bachelor's degree in liberal arts for sure. Oh, totally. And so, and so, the superintendent's really proud, and I think he has a right to be because, and sort of like we talked about the whole management of the park thing, it's like here's something where they're really benefiting the local community. Yeah, you know, they're grabbing they're grabbing local kids who you know have you know decades of um of you know family history in this area they're putting them to work in the park they're giving them job skills um you know and 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 here's the best part so i told you that contractor bid of three to four million they're they're completing the project for three to four hundred thousand dollars wow that's awesome so but by having that special hiring status and just using their own funds that's cool so so, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. So I know you had mentioned earlier that one of the requirements 
uh, of being an artist in residency is that you have to speak with visitors. Can you tell us kind of what that looks like? Sure. So um, all, all residency programs usually have, depending on your the time you're there, but if you're for two weeks, you have to speak at least once, give some kind of public program. Um, and depending on your art, like if you're a painter, maybe you give a painting demonstration or um, well, I've seen different artists do different things um, from my research. It's like there's there's like leather leather workers who will come out and demonstrate how they're working with the leather and oh, okay. putting in designs and things like that. So, you know, as a photographer, you know, I kind of come down to, you know, most likely a slideshow <laughs> of some kind. Um, and I don't have to do that, but um, that's what I've been – the facilities have kind of – enable me to do that because the two parks I've been in so far, I've had really great amphitheater situations and set up to do that. So, um, so for my public program, I presented yesterday. Um, I, it actually didn't start till nine 30 at night, which is interesting, but unfortunately that's just the way it works here for all public programs in the evening, because they have to wait for the sun to go down for it to be dark enough to use their screen mm. in the amphitheater. Right. Um, and so I, I gave my program on how to, um, take intimate in landscapes with your phone. And the reason I chose that topic was, um, I learned this from my residency last year is like last year I gave a presentation on night photography and I had, um, three participants. (laughs) (laughs) So, which was not a lot. And even the part, um, the, my, my person in the park who was handling me is like, she's like, that was a wonderful presentation. But what I realized out of that was like, it was a good presentation, but it wasn't relevant to the general public. Right. Right. Like I, right. Was, I was targeting photographers and there was only three photographers in the local area that were interested. Right. So, um, and being remote, you just have to deal with that. Right. Right. Totally. So this, this time I designed it to, it's like, well, you know, I thought about it as like, well, what does everyone have that could relate to? I was like, wait a second, everyone has a phone, you know, and they take pictures with their phone. And so I was like, well, what if I just, you know, twisted it or not twisted, but, you know, um, you know, tweaked it a little and said, well, what if I taught them to be, you know, not generalists in photography, but more specific to intimate landscapes and just the basic elements of that. Hmm. Now, at this point, I have to give full credit because I've been getting a lot of inspiration lately from Charlotte Gibb. Yeah, totally. That you had on the podcast. Um, and so I, I read through several of her articles and her basic principles, and I adapted um, some of my slides to the principles she talked about. Um, and then something I did was after I'd already taken several photos in the park, um, I, I put those into the show as well. So it was relevant to what I was doing at the moment. Um, as mm-hmm. opposed to just being you know, pictures I've taken in the past. Um, so I've gotten ins- inspiration from her. And then I've got a couple other photographers I've been inspired by. I could talk about them later. Um, I was also reading some articles from um, Erin Babnick and drawing some inspiration from her one. She has that one article that's really popular on the different, the, the basic visual components in, in photographs. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen it. it's like 
six different elements um, that she talked about. So I, I used both of those kind of combined to come up with a presentation. And then, and then I threw in a bunch of iPhone shots I had also done that, you know, kind of adhered to those principles. So, and they're just general guidelines for people. And how many people so, came and how was it received? Um, so it was received really well. Um, as with anything, we always had, we had a few glitches. Um, I think I started around 940 and at that time it was still light enough to where you couldn't really see the slides very well. Um, being projected, and of course they're using an old projector, so it wasn't that bright. Um, so I went through everything and then after talking about all the slides and the principles, I actually went back to the presentation really quickly when it, once it got darker so they can see the pictures better <laughs> on the slideshow. And then, of course, the government laptop wasn't working, so I wound up using my own, <laughs> which wasn't a big deal because I was, I was prepared for that contingency just because I've done enough presentations. I know how this works. Um, you know, so if something can go wrong, it will. Right. Um, so that that's worked out really well. Um, I, I think there's, did I say, Ari, I think there's about 30 people there. Nice, um, nice. And they enjoyed it. So, and That's then awesome. I took on another duty uh, while I've been here, which I haven't done before, but I've been really inspired by um, your work and the other work of the Nature First um, group. Oh, awesome. The Nature First photography. Yeah. And so um, they have something here that are called patio talks, and it's just a 10 to 15 minute talk or it's some kind of rager presentation. And so I, I convinced them to let me do four of those talks. And um, the Interp app was, was actually overjoyed because then I, I took their slots from them. <laughs> right. So they didn't have to prepare anything. I, all they had to do was go out and introduce me and I do the talk for them. Um, and, and so I just have been talking about the nature of first principles. So I've done two of those talks. Um, so far, I've got two more next week. Um, it's a little more challenging than I anticipated. Um, yeah. One, one because it's not, it's not something I developed. Right. You know how you talk about your own photography all day long. <laughs> um, but you know, so it's principles I've adapted, obviously. Um, but it's or adopted, I guess. But just trying to to also relate it to this park so people understood what I was talking about. Um, so the second one I did was today, and it actually went much better than the first one where I felt like I was stumbling around a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and the funny part about that is that I actually had a lot of um, sympathy for the Rangers because when I was all said and done on that very first talk, there were several kids in the audience, and I was trying to figure out how to relate it to kids which you think would be a natural since I'm a teacher. I just hadn't thought it through. Um, <laughs> right, you would think so. Right, but this time I was able to adapt it. But that first presentation, as soon as I was done, two of the kids walked up and they were like, can you sign my thing? I was like, oh, what's this? And they're all they're like, well, <laughs> Like a junior ranger thing? Yeah, they're like, well, this is our junior ranger thing and it says we had to attend a program. So, so, so they had no idea what I was talking about. They were just there because they had to attend a program um, to get their sign off for the junior ranger. So, 
Um, so that, <laughs> so that's why I had sympathy for the Rangers. Like, oh, so this is what it feels like to just be used to get your Junior Ranger badge. Um, so, but yeah, so that's gone good. I think, um, like I said, today was better, uh, relating it a little bit better. And then you and I talked about it, um, you know, a few weeks ago. So I, I've printed out some pictures from the, uh, Walker Canyon poppy fields. Um, mm, yeah. just to show people, you know, how it can make a difference when there's too many visitors and they're not following the rules. Um, and then, yeah. How, how, how did people receive that? Uh, a lot of people were shaking their heads and just kind of surprised. I mean, uh, I'd say about half in each group had heard of it and the other half had not. Um, but then I've also shown a picture that relates to this park. So there's lots, um, or not lots, but there's are areas in the park that are social trails that are not official mm-hmm. trails. And the social, what's interesting about this park in, or this monument in particular is that all, if you're not walking on the direct lava, like the trail itself, you're not, you're actually not supposed to walk on the lava because it breaks down and it's just, it can be dangerous. Um, but the other walking areas where you're going off the main paved trail is all um, cinder. So it's just, you know, little bitty, bitty rocks. But what's interesting about that is if you're walking up a hill or any kind of incline, once you make a track, the track stays. Hmm. And it doesn't go away. And I actually figured that out my first evening here. Um, <laughs> there was some good light happening. So I went out and there's um, – I happen to be here right in the middle or the peak of wildflower season. And we're not talking huge flowers. I mean, it's all, you know, ground level stuff. Um, but sure. I'm walking around in the cinder and I turn around and I can see my track all the way down the hill. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I just created a trail because that's the worst. Because it's like, um, you know, rain and stuff just flows right through the, the cinder. It's not going to wash it away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I backtracked and just kind of tried to flatten things out a little bit and wound up using some drainage areas to walk back down. Um, and now if I go off trail at all, the park has said I, I'm allowed, but to be discreet, especially not, you know, in front of the general public, because they understand that I need to go out to certain areas to take some pictures and so on. So I'm now sure. actually utilizing deer trails. Um, which are pretty obvious um, in the cinder. So I, I, walk, right. I walk on those. So I'm not making, you know, an extra impact of leaving my footprints in the, in the cinder. So. Yeah, uh, that, that definitely speaks pretty, pretty much straight on to the second principle of nature first, which is educate yourself about the places you photograph. Right. Which and, is hard to do, right? Like, like I'm guessing they may have had some signage about that somewhere, but I don't know. Like it takes time to actually teach yourself about a place, especially, I mean, it's not every day we spend time walking around on an old, like old volcano. You know what I mean? Right. (laughs) And in the lava field in general, you know, you're not going to leave any tracks. You just, you know, little pieces may break off, but in the cinder, it's very obvious. Um, And most of their wilderness trails are all cinder. So you can, it's easy to tell where the trail is because there's nothing growing in that path. Um, right. <laughs> but I, I certainly is like, is one of those, like, you know, um, 
shocking moments when you suddenly realize it's like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm violating one of the principles. Um, <laughs> so, I know it's the worst feeling. It's like, oh, I'm such a hypocrite. <laughs> how can I be a representative if I'm doing this? Um, I know it's it's not meant to be all or nothing. I mean, it's like just the fact that you are aware of that is awesome. You know, like that that's really what it's about. Is oh, I'm a, being aware of what you what you learn about the places you're at and kind of what the impact we can have on them. I think that's really cool that that you kind of recognize that and you're trying to show other people what you learn too. Right. So yeah. So I took a couple of pictures now of my footprint about the social trails in general and just showed them. And it's like, look, it's like, I've experienced this myself. It's like you walk off trail in certain areas and your footprints don't go away. And then, you know, the next 50 people that come after you think it's a trail and then they walk on it and it just doesn't, you know, it just, you know, multiplies. So I think people are related to that. And I think what's been neat is that I've been able to demonstrate it in, you know, in the park where they're visiting as opposed to something, you know, way off in California. You know, right. like the no, I think that's, yeah, so, I think that's, I think that's really, really important. So, and I know so, like, oh, go ahead. So, oh no, go ahead. You go ahead. I was just going to say, I know like in certain parks, like in Denali, they actually don't have any trails because they don't want the trails forming. So when you go mm. out in the wilderness, they, they don't want you, um, they don't want you geotagging um, and they don't want you mapping in the sense of, you know, sharing the, your path with other people. So it's not going to create the same path. Um, Interesting. So um, that's something they're a big proponent of because they're just like, you know, we don't want the trails out here. We want it to keep it wild. So find your way and that's fine, but don't share which way you went. So other people don't follow your path. Hmm. So Yeah. It's a different environment. I mean, it has different impacts being, you know, it's tundra and, it's only open for what two, three months out of the year, and just you know, every place is different. You have to think about what's different about this place, and how do I think about it? Right, and you've talked about that, like those cryptobiotic soils that basically that yeah. very thin crust layer in the desert. And it's like so. The first thing you know, arriving at Curves of the Moon, it's like, well, there's no none of that here because it's all volcanic, so I don't have to right. worry, <laughs> right? right? But you know, who knew that cinder was so responsive? to uh right. footsteps so i mean i didn't know that until you said it so yeah it's good to learn yeah that's cool all right well thanks man uh i guess winding down a little bit uh you know you've been on the podcast once before with a totally different twist who do you think would be cool for our listeners to hear here on the podcast um, you know, I've been thinking about this and I'd really like to hear, um, I, I know she's been recommended to you before, but I'd mentioned before Franca, Franca Gabler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, she lives in my area. Um, she's a scientist full time and then just photography is her passion. Um, and she is so good at the intimate landscape stuff. Mm. Um, it's really amazing. It's like, I've seen her work for years and years, but I don't think I've really tuned into it until the last six months. Hmm. Um, or so and just really paying attention to the intricacies that she depicts. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one would be, um, David Hoffman. Um, and he, he also, it's funny, he, him and Franca go out shooting together a lot. Um, and they're both good friends with Michael Fry, who's right. the, who's so many photographers. So, um, they all kind of live near each other actually. 
Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I think uh, Franca and Michael are both friends with Charlotte Gibb. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's that whole group. Uh-huh. Um, and so I'm sure that they influence each other. I mean, right. a couple of years, a couple of years ago, uh, David Hoffman had this incredible in- image and you know how sometimes you could just be looking at something and suddenly it just kind of smacks you in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was one of those images where it was the bottom of, um, I want to say El Cap. So it wasn't even the full view, but the light was just hitting the bottom of it just right to where it was kind of sweeping into the trees. And then he had a little bit of a meadow, the trees, and then the, the rock lines coming into it. And it was, uh, you know, such an impactful image to me. Awesome. Um, but again, it's like, it's definitely one of those intimate landscape type photos that, um, so both of them I would recommend highly to, you know, to just talk about their work some more. Um, cool. So, and they've, and they've both exhibited in Yosemite um, for the Yosemite uh, Renaissance that happens every year. Um, so yep. they've, they're quite known in our area. So Very cool. Well, man, David, this has been really fun to catch up and talk all about your artists in residency and, Really appreciate uh, you being an ambassador of the Nature First uh, movement. So thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So um, if if people, uh, you'll put the links in the show notes, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. So um, yeah, I'm on Instagram as uh, photo hunter, only hunter with no vowels. So P-H-O-T-O-H-N-T-R. Yep. Um, and, then, and then I just have, you know, Facebook you know, David Hunter or David Hunter photo. Um, I have a a web, but it's just a Flickr account. I just, you know, I have no time to develop a web page. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of work, but there's also a lot of benefits to creating your own website if you have the time. Yeah. So. Awesome, man. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's do it again someday. Okay. Sounds great. All right. Well, thanks to David for coming onto the show to talk all about his experience in an artist in residency program. I would highly encourage other photographers to take advantage of this incredibly unique opportunity. I know I will be looking into it for the future myself. Well, do you find yourself wanting to listen more? Fret not. We have 81 bonus episodes over on Patreon for anyone supporting the show at the $5 a month level and higher. It is by far our most popular level of support because it grants you access to bonus episodes every single week. Speaking of Patreon, we're doing something a little bit new over there. Patrons of the podcast are encouraged to participate in our themed photo contests by submitting them to the community board on our Patreon page, which can be found at patreon.com slash fstop and listen slash community. The current theme of Intimate Landscapes ended today, and I had a really fun time selecting a winner this time. We had some fantastic submissions from Jared Hills, Steve Bennett, Ken Kelchermans, Jackson Frischman, and Michael Rhino. Everyone did a fantastic job of representing the current theme. In the end, I decided to pick Ken Kelcherman's photo of sand on a beach. It was quite mesmerizing. I just could not stop looking at it. Check it out. It's in the liner notes. Nice work, Ken. I'll get you a prize very soon. Our next theme, which will end July 26th, is 
Mountains and Deserts in honor of a tattoo that I'm getting this month. Let's see all those awesome shots over on our community board. Okay, let's talk about who's coming up on the podcast. We've got Brandy Mowles coming up. She's a Facebook and Instagram marketing expert. Hao Pan, a landscape photographer living in China. Taylor Gray, a travel and landscape photographer living in the Pacific Northwest. David Cobb from Photo Cascadia in Oregon. And lastly, a really fun panel to conversation with Aaron Reed and Colby Brown, which was all about marketing and business. Okay, well, my favorite part of the podcast has come up, and I'd like to give a very, very special thanks to our Patreon podcast producers. These amazing people contribute to the podcast at $20 a month and higher on our Patreon page. Thank you all so very much. I cannot do this without you. You are awesome. All right, so let's start with Gary Randall, Zachary Smith, Matthew Boone, Richard Wong, Matthias at Photomagica, James Bakavoy, Danny LeFrancois, Ken Dono, William Nurse, Laurie Berenson, Anton Everine, David Kingham, Jason Matias, Charlotte Gibb, Jeff Peterson, Chris Rice, Eric Stenslin, Jack Curran, and Michael Howard. If you're listening, hopefully I'll talk to all of you tonight at our awesome Google Hangout. Thanks for stopping in collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.